an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Bet the board. What do you mean you don't bet? I mean, I don't bet. You know, I don't care. I don't. I never have. Never will. Yeah, right. I bet you 20 bucks I can get you gambling before the end of the day. You owe me 15 grand, pal. Pay him. Pay that man his money. It's the Bet the Board podcast. God likes me. He really, really likes me. In the end, I wound up right back where I started. I could still pick winners, and I could still make money for all kinds of people back home. And why mess up a good thing? Here's Pain Insider and Todd Furman. Welcome into the Bet the Board podcast powered by FanDuel. NFL Week 8, a jam-packed show for you today. I am your host, Todd Furman, joined as always by my esteemed colleague and co-host, the one, the only, Payne Insider. Two days in a row, baby. A lot of energy. It's all about bringing the energy to get to the mid-season point, Payne. You don't want to go through the dog days of October and November. Yesterday was a dog day. Tuesday night, I got about three and a half hours of sleep. It was like my first really bad night of sleep during football season. But we got a couple hours last night. We're back, raring to go. Love the NFL. Let's get it done. We got to get you back on the six-hour plan. I mean, uh, I know there's not a lot of time to sleep this time of year, and I'm envious of those that sleep like Justin Verlander for like 10 to 12 hours (laughs) to keep their bodies in mint condition. But uh, the reality of it is we got to get you at least six to try and carry you through because Zycam can only do so much. I'm worried about 10 to 12 hours of sleep a night. You're sleeping half the life away at that point. I don't even know what you do. I, I mean, I can't even lie in bed that long. I mean, I sleep six and a half, seven hours, and that feels like it's overkill. So to sleep like 12 hours and just be out like a light, I can't even imagine what that feels like. I, I need six. And in the off season, that short little like three month stint, I really try to get seven or eight, just knowing that I want to build it up a little bit as we head into football. But I think what happened is I got on the the T-kick recently and even though it's decaf i think that's what's messing me up here i gotta get you on the uh, 20 minute cat nap approach and see if you can pull that off like you know five or six hours you close your eyes for about 15 to 20 boom you get a little bit of jolt and you're good to power through the rest of the day not big on naps i don't know why yeah that, you learn naps to- and coffee two things i just don't do interesting it's weird the more we do these podcasts the more our listeners learn about your idiosyncrasies and your quirks <laughs> Let's put it. Let's put it that way. All right, we got a lot of big. We got a lot of big games to break down. We have a little different format though than what we've grown accustomed to. More on that uh, as we get deeper into the podcast. Of course, John Sheeran will stop by. Interested to get his take on exactly how last weekend was for the house, what they've seen so far this week, and of course that massive showdown between Philadelphia and Dallas. And oh, by the way, spoiler alert: that based on user feedback, we will not be doing a deep dive or a breakdown or even touching on Sunday Night Football, so you guys are on your own. But a game we will touch on, Payne, is the marquee game of the early slate on Sunday, where it's the Pittsburgh Steelers putting their undefeated record on the line against the Baltimore Ravens. And Baltimore, a a three-and-a-half-point home favorite in that contest. Total in this game, 46-and-a-half at FanDuel. And we can set the table for this one before we get into some of the X's and O's. This is a number, look-ahead-wise, that opened significantly higher in that 5.5 range. You saw immediate support for the dog, and the market has since stabilized in that 3.5-4 range. The overall series has the lowest margin of victory among all division opponents since 2008 at 7.3 points per game. You look at the Steelers, the second marquee matchup in back-to-back weeks after being outscored in the second half and holding on for dear life 
against the Tennessee Titans. Under 5-1 the last six matchups between these teams. Steelers undefeated, as we mentioned. 6-0 for just the second time in franchise history. And when you look at the Steelers, they've done nothing but line people's wallets as an underdog. But John Harbaugh with extra time to prepare. 9-3 against the spread. 10-2 straight up. I give you all of that to ask you this, Payne. Which side of the ball are you more fascinated to watch on Sunday? The Steelers' offense against the Ravens' defense or the Ravens' offense that hasn't looked as explosive in 2020 as it did last year against that Steelers' defense? We can start with the latter. But what's interesting to me is we've seen a lot of line movement here. And this just feels like a game with a lot of variance, even with the total coming down. And I'm not sure we've had a game where the guys that I speak with have had a wider range of opinions. And the two mindsets seem to be, you know, we either make this game one and a half, and that's why we took the points early, or how can we get Baltimore, you know, to lay three here, right? That's that's the key, because they're looking at this and saying to themselves, if we can lay three in this spot. Baltimore laid three and a half to Kansas City. Nobody has <laughs> Pittsburgh and Kansas City as equals. And the other kickers here is like, remember how they came out of their bye last season and Baltimore absolutely smacked Belichick and Brady. Those are the two mindsets. In the first group, got out ahead, took the five and a half, six, and then the second set of guys is dying to lay three. That's really where we stand at this point with the line. It's kind of in no man's land at this point here. When you dig into the game theory side of things a little bit in the metrics, you're like... You know what, that makes sense because this game does have a lot of variance in it. So a couple of things that I kind of see on the offensive side of the ball for Baltimore. The first one is, and we kind of touched on it a little bit last week when we were talking Pittsburgh's defense, but what happens here on first down? Right now, Baltimore runs on 64% of their first down plays. It's even more than they did last season. And they've been less effective doing it this year than last. Yards per rush attempt on first down down 1.3 yards year over year. Baltimore actually has a negative EPA on first down runs this season. It's probably the loss of Marshall Yonda and then the way teams are defending Lamar and Baltimore. It's a little bit different this season. The other thing is, you know, when you look at Pittsburgh, tied for number one in the NFL, they allow 32% of runs to great successful on first down. Last week against Tennessee, 3.3 carry and a 31% success rate on first down runs. Tennessee didn't get the memo that they needed to kind of <laughs> change a little bit to face Pittsburgh. But Mike Vrabel's a genius, is, Payne. And so is Arthur Smith with his play calling. How dare Tennessee not modify their game plan? Arthur Smith's actually been shockingly good. And even though he's not an analytics guy, he does things that are analytically sound, even though he doesn't quite know it, which is interesting. So you have to ask yourself, is Greg Roman... Is he going to identify this with extra time during the bye week and maybe break that tendency and throw a little bit more on first down? When you look at Lamar potentially throwing more, you could you know, understand the concerns a little bit. He hasn't been as good as a passer this season, but where he's struggling is two areas, deep throws and outside the numbers. Those are really the areas. Lamar's completion percentage on throws outside the numbers is down more than 7%. He's only connected on 23% of his deep throws. Combine those two things with the fact that, you know, his pressure rate this year is up 8% year over year. That's why the offense is struggling a little bit. But if you actually look at Lamar, he's improved as a passer on first down. Accuracy is 73%. Yards per pass attempt, 9.3. Passer rating on first down, nearly 120. So that's where you want to really get Lamar going, throwing on first downs, maybe with play action. Pittsburgh's defense is fantastic, but if you look, 11th defensively on first down passing success rate allowed. While it's above average, it is their weakness. So that's where you kind of want to attack there. We'll see if Baltimore uses more play action. Right now, Lamar throwing with about uh, play action about 33% clip. That's an area we talked about last week where Pittsburgh struggled to defend play action. Obviously, most quarterbacks are better using play action, but you have Devin Bush out in the middle of the field. Maybe the play action is going to work there to get Andrews involved. So, you know, the keys here are this. Lamar has to be better, obviously. Has to hit a deep pass or two. Has to be more accurate outside the hashes when he is pressured, which, you know, expect Pittsburgh to get home a little bit. They're number one in pressure rate. They blitz the second most in the NFL. So Lamar is going to see pressure here. He's got to handle it a little bit better. And then Lamar needs to be really good on first down throws. Make Pittsburgh pay on that down. 
The other thing here is what's interesting. It's clear they know at this point that they're not hitting on all cylinders. Lamar had this off-season kind of get-together with his receivers and tight ends during the bye to work on the chemistry. They know it's a problem. They're trying to work it out. I'm just interested what this offense looks like out of the bye. There's got to be some wrinkles. There's got to be some level of change. Um, And so that's kind of what I'm excited to see about on this side. Yeah, you definitely have to change the approach that you employed that was so successful last year. As you mentioned, you watch the Ravens week in, week out, and I know what their margin of victory says, but clearly this is a team that lacks some of that pop and the big play potential we grew accustomed to during Lamar's MVP season. So maybe with two weeks to retool, they'll come out with an aggressive game plan, much like we saw in, what was it, a 37-20 victory on Sunday Night Football against the New England Patriots a season ago. Meanwhile, They the, shot out of a cannon in that game. Oh, they were outstanding. I mean, they were absolutely incredible. And before New England even knew what had hit them, the Ravens had a you know double-digit lead. Uh, and that was basically all she wrote in that spot. Now, of course, Baltimore was a slight home underdog, and that was kind of their coming out party where people began to believe, myself included, that this team could be capable of big things uh, throughout the course of the regular season. On the other side of the ball, Payne, we know that Baltimore went out there and made a trade during their bye week. They bring in Yannick Ngakwe from the Minnesota Vikings, a player that they had actively pursued from Jacksonville, just couldn't make it happen this offseason. They pair him up with his former teammate in Calais Campbell. Uh, And for all the questions we have about the Ravens' offense and what they may look like coming out of the bye, the defense has still been outstanding this season. And when you look at some of their overall numbers, uh, I mean, this is a team that will get Brandon Williams back to help at at nose tackle against the run. Patrick Queen continues to make major strides as a rookie linebacker. Uh, And when you look at the Ravens, one of the things they do so well is take the football away. And we know Big Ben can be prone to a costly turnover or two, as was on full display last weekend against the Titans where he was intercepted three times. The one thing that you're hearing throughout this week is that Baltimore's defense is anxious for this one. They're chomping at the bit. They realize they blew a a big opportunity, I think, against the Chiefs on Monday Night Football. They were exposed. You get another chance here. And a lot of guys on the Ravens defense are talking about proving that they're just as good as Pittsburgh's defense because Pittsburgh's defense is basically getting all the headlines this season. We know Baltimore's rested. You just wonder if Wink Martindale is going to come up again with maybe some different wrinkles off the bye. It is one speed for the Ravens defense. You know, they're, they're going to play man. They're going to send the house. And at times, as great as they are, it looks like a chicken with its head cut off. And it, it's tough to like say this about Baltimore's defense because they're third in defensive efficiency. They're great. You know, just about every other organization would die to have Baltimore's defense. But they've been picked on in these big spots recently because when you face good teams... Right, like the 100-mile-an-hour fastball, good hitters can hit that. I think the difference with this matchup also is that it's going to change dramatically from what we saw last year with Big Ben. We know Baltimore likes to send pressure, second-highest rate in blitz. Um, most of it comes from, from you know, I'm sorry, second-highest pressure rate. Most of it comes from the blitz, 46% blitz rate. But the one thing that Big Ben does a little bit differently, and if you go back to the games last year, they were somewhat close for the initial portion of those games with lesser quarterbacks. The difference is that Big Ben gets rid of the ball quickly right now. That ball's getting and out of his hand real fast. It, it's ridiculous because it, you know, I think we talked about this in the preseason podcast about Duck and Rudolph, and they just hold on to the ball forever. Big Ben right now, fastest release time in the NFL, 2.29 seconds on average. Ben gets rid of it. Only three quarterbacks release it faster than 2.5 seconds on average. Ben's the only quarterback under 2.3. So, you know, let's see if if Baltimore's blitz can even get home. If it can't, you know, can Baltimore, uh, are the, is Baltimore going to change it up? Can Big Ben make them pay? Is Wink going to do something different if the blitz isn't getting home? Right now, you're looking at Big Ben. He's only been pressured on 19% of his dropbacks because of this quick release. The other drastic difference here that Baltimore hasn't seen yet and obviously, you know, they're looking at film. They're seeing things that are going on. But the difference this season was, and I, I believe we mentioned this on the Monday night game when Pittsburgh went into New York and faced the Giants, was the addition of Matt Canada as the QB coach and what his influence could be on this offense. And it was a lot of the pre-snap motion. Pitt uses pre-snap motion this season at the fourth highest rate. If you have a defense that's being aggressive and loves to play downhill like Baltimore's does, motion and misdirection 
is usually the way to go. So let's see if if Baltimore's undisciplined at times and Pittsburgh can hit them with something quick or an explosive because you know you lose your gap integrity. One thing that we've seen with Patrick Queen, the guy's a missile. The missile just kind of goes in weird directions, right? He's not quite always <laughs> where he needs to be. I think the other thing is we want to see how aggressive Pittsburgh is going to be offensively because I think you have to you know, kind of always attack the attacking defense. You always want to be efficient down to down, obviously, but sometimes you need to be able to stretch the field with some aggression. You look at the second half of the Tennessee game, very conservative approach for Pittsburgh. And in general, if you look at the Steelers offense, and I was watching something on Next Gen the other day, Pittsburgh has four receivers that all rank 16th or better in average top speed, yet Big Ben's average completed air yards 4.6 yards so it's a Steelers offense that plays in a phone booth right now it's about run after the catch but maybe with these speedy receivers you hit one down the field I know Baltimore is good defending the explosive pass the other thing Baltimore is good at though is making tackles right they've done a very good job preventing run after the catch yak yards fifth best and yards after the catch allowed so if you're going to have these quick little dump offs and play in a phone booth Baltimore's probably going to be, you know, a good tackling team here. I want to see if Pittsburgh's aggressive enough. Maybe they take a couple shots down the field. I, again, this one just has a lot of variance. I can't wait to see how these two teams are going to choose to attack each other. There's just so much I think that we're going to find out here. The other thing, which I believe is is precautionary, but we want to keep an eye on Todd. Marlon Humphrey hasn't been in practice with an illness. Jimmy Smith limited with an Achilles. He's been on the injury report frequently this year, but never with the Achilles designation, which is something that we know he's dealt with uh, in the past. Again, both those feel precautionary, but obviously we want to check on those. Man is held together by spit and paper mache at this point in his career. So anytime Jimmy Smith is on the injury report, you always get a little bit concerned about his availability for Sunday. No doubt this will be one of the marquee matchups of the weekend. And I think all of us are intrigued to see if Baltimore can turn back the clock and look more like the 2019 edition uh, of the Baltimore Ravens or if the Pittsburgh Steelers will continue on their path with an undefeated record and maybe the number two in terms of knocking Kansas City from its perch atop the AFC. Before you, you know what one thing is interesting on this, Todd, and, sure. and I went back and watched some of these games because I was I was trying to figure out how teams were defending Lamar a little bit, and I'm just kind of looking at this Excel sheet now, and it just popped up at me. One thing that I have noticed: teams are keeping their ends a little wider, and they're forcing Lamar to hand it off. So if you look at like percentage of runs, Lamar was responsible for 19% of the Ravens' runs last year. It's only 15% this year. So it looks like what's happening is the ends are pinching out wide, forcing Lamar to hand it off. And without Marshall Yonda there, they're just not getting the push up front. And that seems to be partly why the run game hasn't been as efficient this year for Baltimore. Yeah, you would think you try and funnel all your traffic through the middle, and you mentioned the run game not being efficient. I don't think Coach Harbaugh knows exactly what running back allows them to operate with their highest level of success or efficiency. Mark Ingram's availability up in the air. We both thought very highly of J.K. Dobbins and what he could do. Maybe this is the week he bursts onto the scene because I think he offers a lot more big play potential than what Mark Ingram does. So it'll be interesting to see how that workload in the backfield gets divvied up in a game where Baltimore's had two weeks to implement all sorts of wrinkles uh, and maintain at least theoretically a stranglehold on the division where they're only slight favorites right now as the Steelers have kind of bridged that gap a bit. Before we get into the marquee game of the afternoon, Payne, uh, I do want to get your take on a contest going on in your neck of the woods. Not one to break down in great detail, but we saw the Rams get back to basics on Monday Night Football. We talked about tempo we talked about their ability to slow down the bears and they looked every bit the part of a good football team and a workman like 24 to 10 victory in that spot now they have to travel across the country on a short week we know that the two news leaked and it didn't make brian flores all too happy that that got out there well in advance but this is now his team brian fitzpatrick has passed off the baton the rookie is taking over uh what should we expect from tua in his debut against the talented Rams defense and specifically Aaron Donald and company up front? I think it'll probably look pretty good. You know, we kind of talked about this transition to Tua and why it had to happen during the bye. And it's knowing that he's a left-handed quarterback in a league that doesn't have any left-handed quarterbacks. So that, I think, transition of how does it come out of his hands? 
with a different spin and rotation. Can the receivers handle that? The protections are obviously changing along the offensive line with the blind side being a little bit different. What was interesting to me, though, is Chan Gailey came out this week, and he actually flipped it. He said the Rams' defense would be the ones having to make adjustments to Tua's left-handedness, not the Dolphins'. Chan said it didn't change a lot for us. If we had a bootleg that's been to the right for Fitz, then it's been on Tua's wristband every week, and he runs it to the left. So we've practiced it both ways. Nothing really changes for us. And then I shot a note, and I have been hearing that Tua has been absolutely lights out at practice, in camp. He's typically having more snaps than a typical backup would. So I think there's some positive there. What you hope for is that nothing actually changes because you can't baby Tua. You you can't make this change and then turn around and hand it off to kind of protect Tua. And the one thing that's interesting about Chan Gailey's offense right now that's been a pleasant surprise is early down passing. Miami right now has a 62% passing success rate on first and second down throws. That's number one in the NFL, if you can believe it. Miami's also averaging 8.8 yards per pass on first down, Todd. So the hope is that nothing actually changes, and Miami are simply, you know, they're they're inserting a guy who they deem to be the better passer with a higher ceiling here. And that's all you want. I mean, the reality of it is you drafted him to be the face of your franchise. It does suck for Ryan Fitzpatrick, given what he's done to keep the Dolphins competitive. Three and three, very much in the thick of things. Not only in the wild card race, but if Buffalo continues to struggle offensively, hey, maybe the Dolphins become a legitimate dark horse in the NFC, AFC East, you know, a year or two ahead of schedule. So we'll see exactly what Tua has. Uh, I know it's a game that probably wouldn't have generated that much fanfare if he wasn't making his debut. Uh, but clearly a contest that I think a lot of the NFL will be on notice to watch to see how the Rams handle that aforementioned prosperity and how two affairs in his debut, uh, knowing that this is a spot that probably should have been against the Jets, all things being equal, coming out of the bye, a little bit more difficult against the Rams. Into the afternoon pain, where it's the Seahawks trying to bounce back from their first loss of the season, welcoming in a division rival in the San Francisco 49ers. And it's the Seahawks, a two-and-a-half-point favorite at FanDuel. Total on this game, 54. The Seahawks, of course, earlier this week at a pass rusher in Carlos Dunlap. He won't be available, but in the greater context, this is the kind of move that the Seahawks have to make to make themselves contenders? Absolutely. And I think we, we mentioned this on Monday, that he was unhappy with the current situation in Cincinnati and just listed his house for sale on a random tweet. And a I lot of the sold veteran the house guys, yet, by the way, yeah, a lot of the the veteran players have felt this way. Whether it was AJ Green, who we saw kind of pouting and not giving effort, and even said something to the effect of, "If you could read his lips, trade me on the sideline during the Baltimore game." But you had Geno Atkins, you had Carlos Dunlap, you've had a couple of those defensive guys along the line not getting the snaps they're accustomed to. And you can see that it's a transition. It's a full-blown youth movement there. But I think this is beneficial for both. Seattle needed a pass rusher. I think we even talked about it on Monday. said, you know, they're going to go get someone on the trade deadline. And this was the perfect recipe because you're not playing Dunlap. You need a pass rush yourself. You can get him for pennies on the dollar. And if you look at Carlos Dunlap, top 20 pressure rate guy the last five seasons, and he's going to a team that's only 19% pressure rate. So I think this is probably beneficial for both parties and if you look Seattle actually started hot in that area of getting pressure and we were like how is this happening they don't have anybody but it's been a steady decline the last few weeks Seattle right now 25th in pressure rate and they're actually I I think that number is probably pretty flattering for the talent they have along the defensive line Carlos Dunlap will certainly help yeah, a couple other names that I've seen thrown out there, uh, and of course we'll see what movement we have before the trade deadline next week. Seattle had been attached to Tack McKinley for Atlanta. We'll see if Alvin Smith's on the move uh, from the Dallas Cowboys, but clearly the Seattle defense had to do something to try and make them a little bit more competitive, as we saw what Kyler Murray was able to do last week. More on that in just a second. Biggest I think thing- we're going to see some guys moving around. You know, deals like this are easy. You, you get a veteran guy that you're hoping has enough left in the tank. You're buying him for cheap from a seller who's trying to get the salary cap situation figured out before there's some question marks with the salary cap next season. So I think it's interesting. I think a lot of these guys will be on the move. We saw it with Everson Griffin this week as well. 
Yep. De- what Detroit give up for him? A conditional sixth round pick to bring him back to uh, NFC North roots? Yeah. They, I mean, th- that's right. And you're looking at a Lions team we've talked about that has trouble getting pressure as well. They're 24th in pressure rate. And I think that one's a little bit different here because, you know, I think Griffin can probably help the Lions a little bit, but I think it's more about attitude and tone for the Lions locker room and organization. You get that big win last week to get to 500. And then the organization kind of doubles down and says, we're not done yet. More help's on the way. So I think that's an, an interesting one. I think this is an interesting team in Detroit because if you really look, they're 3-3. Three and three. The three losses are a home game where they blew a 17-point lead. The other two losses are to the Packers and the Saints. You also blew a 14-point lead to the Saints. So that's a really, really interesting team. I think we're going to find out more about them this week. But if you think about it, go back to last week, Todd, for a little bit here. I know we're going way left field. We're getting out of our our comfort zone here, and and we're kind of just going off left. But I'm thinking about last week's line, and we never saw the resistance come in that we thought could be there because we know this one specific group has already played Atlanta this week and seems to play them every single week, didn't actually play the Falcons last week. There was actually a buy on the Lions. And a lot of times as betters, right, you're looking at these games – and you're saying to yourself, I'm playing this because I'm fading the opposing team. That wasn't the case last week. It was a full-blown buy on the Lions, which is interesting to kind of gauge as you try to assess Detroit moving forward. And it definitely took a unique uh, se- sequence of events. Easy for me to say, yikes. Sequence of events to get that game to unfold uh, that should have been significantly different. Uh, had the Lions made the plays or come in with a game plan that we thought catered to their skill sets against Atlanta's defensive deficiencies, which will, of course discuss before we close up shop later but when we look at the Seahawks and 49ers pain I think the most logical place to start with this game is the injuries that continue to mount up for both sides Uh, when you go through the practice report on Wednesday Seattle absolutely decimated at the running back spot Uh, did not practice Chris Carson Carlos Hyde Travis Homer which makes rookie DJ Dallas the one healthy running back on the roster Mikey Potty Quentin Dunbar Sheck Griffin uh, Amadi was out Benson Mawaya Jeff Swaim Jamal Adams San Francisco is not healthy by any stretch of the imagination either. Uh, but when you begin to try and find a matchup that one of these teams can exploit, obviously we all want to focus on Russell Wilson in a bounce back spot. We know he threw three interceptions, blamed himself uh, for them blowing that 10 point lead against the Arizona Cardinals uh, against the 49ers defense that right now, other than maybe Fred Warner lacks a lot of that star power that we saw out there a season ago. And listen, I see Seattle having success moving the ball here. You know, aside from San Francisco also being a little beat up defensively, the biggest thing for me when I broke this game down is the drastic difference in the offenses the 49ers have played this season versus what they're going to see here with Russell Wilson, who uncharacteristically threw up on himself in front of the world, basically. He had a fantastic first two and a half, three quarters. I don't know what happened late. But right now, what you're looking at is San Francisco's played the fourth easiest schedule of offenses. Now you get Seattle, the second most efficient offense. And in terms of passing offenses, the 49ers have faced the third easiest schedule. You get a pissed off Russell Wilson in the third most efficient pass attack. I, I just, the matchup here for Seattle's offense is very good. Four of the league's seven worst passing offenses the 49ers have faced. And the one thing that I think we've kind of touched on here is the kind of receiver and passing offense that can give the 49ers secondary a little bit trouble and when you're looking at you know a depleted secondary a little bit and I think you mentioned Tart and and who knows if he's going to play or not we'll see but you look at the the last two games where San Francisco's gone out and won the Rams don't have a true number one outside receiver I love Robert Woods I love Cooper Cup those aren't your traditional number one outside receivers. New England certainly doesn't have an outside receiver, but Seattle does, right? DK Metcalf, I think, is going to play pretty well here, especially, you know, big bounce back game off the Sunday nighter where he has two catches for 23 yards. The other thing that you're seeing, I would guess maybe call it a struggle for Seattle's offense, is Russell Wilson's taking too many sacks. He's holding on to the ball a little bit too long, trying to search out the big play. But you're looking at San Francisco at that depleted front four they're only 24th in pass rush win rate so I think Seattle is going to get back healthy on offense here I think they're going to show out 
perfect weather conditions. It's the other side of the ball, I think, that we're going to see San Francisco have some success. It's not going to be on the defensive side. Well, I mean, when you look at Russell Wilson, he definitely has good numbers in his career against San Francisco, not only from a statistical standpoint, but also a cover side of things. Going back to 2000, Russell Wilson's cover percentage against San Francisco, 11-4-1, is better than any other quarterback versus a single opponent. The next closest to him would be Big Ben against Cincinnati Bengals and Aaron Rodgers tormenting the Chicago Bears. You mentioned the other side of the ball, and we know that this has been the Achilles heel for the Seahawks defense, giving up yards and doing so in chunks. Kyler Murray took 52 dropbacks last week. Payne was pressured just 11 times. The Seahawks didn't register a single sack, a single quarterback hit, and merely a handful of hurries. Now, Jimmy Garoppolo doesn't offer that same level of athleticism as Kyler Murray, so Seattle can't, they're, well, can't, they can, but they're not going to need to utilize that mush rush to try and slow down the 49ers. But to San Francisco's credit, Next man up seems to be their mantra. They lose another running back. Jeff Wilson will be out here, but it looks like Tevin Coleman could potentially return. But ultimately, this falls on Kyle Shanahan. No Debo Samuel. I mean, do the 49ers have enough weapons to attack in space and continue to put pressure on a Seattle defense that's shown vulnerability week in, week out? That's the big question because Seattle right now is trending towards being the worst pass defense in the league. And we absolutely love Kyle Shanahan, one of the most brilliant offensive minds in football. But a lot of the 49ers' offensive success right now, it's scheme-based. But you're also looking at another schedule dichotomy here. The 49ers have played one of the seven easiest schedules of pass defenses, and they're just kind of middling in a lot of passing categories. And now you're without Debo Samuel, as you mentioned. So that's the big question. Can you attack Seattle where they're most vulnerable? I think the answer is yes. But the question becomes to what degree? And the interesting part about this matchup is we know that Kyle Shanahan typically is a run-first guy. They operate at the seventh highest run rate in the NFL the first three quarters. And the one thing that Seattle can actually do is stop the run, ninth in defensive rush efficiency. So they're going to have to figure out how to scheme up guys in the pass game. Right now, when you're looking at Jimmy G, he still isn't 100% healthy, I don't think. And he doesn't look overly comfortable right now. He's got the lowest completed air yards this season at 37 So that's going to be the interesting part here because it's going to have to be based all on scheme because I don't know how well you're going to do running the ball here against Seattle. I think you're going to have some success just because of of the scheme and, and what Kyle Shanahan does. But that is the strength of Seattle. Seattle will welcome you running it at them if you can negate throwing against that secondary. So that's going to be the big question. Can you attack that secondary deep down the field? And that's that's the other thing here, Todd, is when you're looking at the type of receiver that the 49ers have, more gadget guys, I would say, than a DeAndre Hopkins that's just going to pummel you deep, obviously. So I'm struggling with this game. Let's just kind of put it that way. We can talk about this from a line perspective and why I'm struggling with it is because we're having a little bit of a battle here. Very sharp money on San Francisco. Lesser sharp money on Seattle. I'm not sure ultimately where this is going to land. But you look at it, you had a look ahead last week. It was as high as five, five and a half. You're now down to three at this point. It just feels awkward to me. And you hate to go against information, but it's awkward to me that we're having a San Francisco team that struggled even last week to throw it consistently, beat Belichick by, you know, 30 plus points, and we're coming back to the well this week after Seattle stubs its toe on national television and it's just this weird dichotomy because we're not really sure what Seattle is either so I get both perspectives and why these two groups are are battling each other because if you look at Seattle's wins Todd they suddenly don't look very well when you see what some of those teams are starting to do now what you New mean England beating, doesn't look all that impressive beating the Patriots uh, Cowboys and Falcons aren't <laughs> resume building wins at this point in the season right and, and Minnesota's now we thought Minnesota's going to be down all right we went under their win total but the market still had them as a nine win team they're clearly not that either so they've been just kind of squeaking by all these big name teams that didn't really pan out to be overly good. Now I think the Dak thing is, or the Dallas thing rather, is different because Dak was there. So I'm not really looking at it as like, oh, I'm you know assessing Dallas in their current form. That's not the case. I think that was probably a pretty good win, and they had a double digit lead there. They had a double digit lead against New England. You know they've had some double digit leads against Arizona as well. So that's that's the interesting part of this game for me. And I think I'm going to watch this one play out. I won't actually be on the game, but it's only Thursday morning. We'll see. But certainly a battle going on here. 
despite the the move downwards. Yeah, pretty interesting to see this number go from three minus twenty in Seattle's favor to a soft three, even some two and a halves as it continues to ping pong all over the place before we'll ultimately see a resting spot with some of the injury information providing a little bit more clarity in terms of who will or won't be available, whether it's for San Francisco on the defensive side of the ball or Seattle and how deep they're going to have to go into their running back stable to figure out a semblance of a balanced attack. Normally, Payne, we'd have a couple more big game breakdowns to get to, but since we're mixing things up on this Thursday, it's time to welcome in our weekly guest. He joins us every Thursday here on the Bet the Board podcast throughout this football season. You can follow John Sheeran on Twitter. That's J Sheeran, S-H-E-E-R-A-N-1981. And uh, John, you know, after your pep talk last week, we finally put two best bet winners in the win column. You know, we felt we had the weight of the world on our shoulders. So we appreciate that motivational speech he gave us. I'm glad I could uh, affect the results of your picks and, and get you finally to the window. It's been uh, it's been a long journey, right? We we were gonna uh, you know bu- come out and have to bust your chops and ask what the probability was for to have two best bets end the exact same way on Saturday and Sunday with running backs ill-equipped to understand the time and situation. But Payne and I were afraid to know what those astronomical probabilities would have been. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, pretty interesting one in the NFL given the, his history with it and. The fact that he, he managed to fall on the line and in the end zone. But uh, glad it worked out for you guys in the end. Uh, how did uh, last weekend work out for the house overall, whether it was college football on Saturday or the NFL on Sunday? I'd have to imagine that getting Arizona's comeback uh, on Sunday night football to win that game outright was probably one of the stronger decisions you guys could have hoped for. Yeah, exactly. We had a really good weekend overall. A couple of key ones went our way. Um, obviously, um, some kind of higher profile ones went against us, but against us, but overall, uh, the piece both Saturday and Sunday was really strong. Probably one of the best weekends we've had all season. When we look ahead to this weekend, I know, Payne, you'll have plenty of questions for John as well. Knowing that Sunday night doesn't offer all that much intrigue, albeit with a local team there uh, for FanDuel, this number comes out in that 8.5, 9 range. Ben DiNucci will make his NFL starting debut against the Philadelphia Eagles. Do you see a real or anticipated decline in handle just because it doesn't have that name cachet of a Dak Prescott-Carson Wentz showdown? Is it the records that slow things down? Or it's, hey, look, it's a standalone football game. There's nothing else for people to bet on. Uh, they don't care if the three of us were out there in a starting capacity. <laughs> well, that's not going to happen. But <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at least I'm speaking from my own perspective. You uh, haven't seen Todd play linebacker. <laughs> oh, 160 pounds coming downhill. You don't want me filling those run gaps, boys. Let's put it that way. There's a lot of wind forecast this week, Todd. 160 pounds is not getting a, a lot done for sure. Um, yeah, I think a little of both, if I'm honest. I think the uncertainty around uh, Ben DiNucci is obviously going to impact people's uh, willingness to invest in Dallas. Um, but it is, as you say, a Sunday night primetime game. And we've seen, regardless of who's played playing all season, the... Um, the demand has been strong. Obviously, it would be uh, multiples of that if we had Dak on the field. And, uh, you know, even Andrew Dalton, from a certain perspective, I think would have appealed just to kind of see if he was able to kind of build on, well, I was going to say build on the progress he's made. I'm not sure that he actually has made any so far. But, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do think that that, that that will be a bit of a, until we get clarity of at least who's going to be on the field and the line settles down. Uh, I think people may start to play them, but I, I think overall you're right. I, I do think that we would expect a drop in turnover relative to what we would have expected when we saw uh, the schedule at the start of the season. John, in terms of liability coming into this weekend, in terms of sharp action, anything stand out at this point? Yeah, I mean, liability uh, is Green Bay without a shadow of a doubt. Obviously, 5-1 and one win record and 5-1 and one against the spread. Um, just that one loss coming in Tampa Bay. Everybody, uh, 95% of the money overall between the money line and the spread is for the Packers. Um, we actually really like the spot, though. We're happy to kind of get as much exposure exposure as we can, particularly at seven on Green Bay. Our line made it probably closer to five and a half, five even. So I expect to see that move between now and kickoff. Um, but all of the money so far is for Green Bay. And that one, I think it's interesting that the weather you know, 37 degrees, I think 25 mile an hour winds projected. That's going to be pretty cold there. It's uh, depressed the total by four points. But yeah, we haven't seen any impact on the spread. And that's a little bit peculiar to my mind. So I expect to see some kind of strong Viking play towards uh, kickoff. 
at least from the sharper betters. Uh, at least that's what we expect. Uh, I think in terms of sharp play, yeah, I think we've saw, seen plenty of it on the totals with the weather, I think, being kind of the key component of that around the league. I uh, definitely saw some sharp play on San Francisco plus three, saw some on Vegas at plus three and the under in that game at 52 and a half as well. Um, one of the stronger moves, though, was definitely the Dolphins plus four and a half and four. Uh, we would have been on the Ram side apart from that money, respecting that move. Uh, and that looked to be pr- bet pretty, pretty heavily by the pros. Uh, one of the syndicates, I'm very sure, is on, is on Miami in that game. You know, you mentioned that game, John, and I want to ask, I think it'll be always be helpful for our listeners. We touched a little bit earlier in the show about two and the overall impact as far as how Payne assesses the Dolphins being in his backyard going forward. When you look at the team like the Rams, you see kind of uneven performances. They get more or less dominated for the first half against the 49ers, then follow it up with a very strong performance on Monday Night Football. How difficult is it from a bookmaker perspective to try and get a handle and a grasp uh, on a Rams team that up until Monday night hadn't had a win against a team hailing from any division other than the NFC East. Yeah, it's the NFC, and now it's Chicago on top of that as well. So <laughs> um, I think that list could get a little bit bigger by the end of the season. Uh, the Rams have been really brilliant for us. I mean, we've picked our right spots to be with them and, and oppose them then as well when uh, obviously this, the, the, the 49ers San Francisco game, I think, was uh, a key element of that. So they've been really good to us. Um, I think our traders in general are probably higher than the market, at least at the start of the year, on them. So that helped us as well. Um, I think this is a really tricky one, though. I'm not, I don't really have a strong feel for the game myself. The line's down to three, although juiced towards the Rams right now with us. Um, a huge uh, split for uh, the Rams in terms of the money we're seeing. I think of you know about 33 to one is the ratio right now. Uh, on the Rams, so 99% of the money, 96% of the money on on the Rams. I think you'll continue to see that. Uh, I think the change of QB is a, an interesting one. I think it's hard to actually be too dogmatic about what the number and the adjustment should be. Probably would have really liked Miami in this spot if we had Fitzpatrick on the field. Um, I think you got to trust the Miami organization. The two is the right move. I think some of the positives coming out of the locker room uh, are a good indication that he's earned it and not just been given it. Um, but I would probably want to see a little bit more of it rather than uh, on his own 10-yard line that we saw two weeks ago. <laughs> Certainly a, a tough travel spot here for the Rams, making another appearance on the East Coast. Let me ask you one thing, John, before we kind of transition away, and I'll let Todd finish it off. You said you're at three on this game. That's the lowest in the market, but you're taking 96% of the money uh, on the ramps, you guys are comfortable having that large of a decision in-house? Yeah, I mean, the size of our overall group, our, our overall, you know, umbrella that we fit under with Flutter, Interna- Flutter International is just such a big group that we don't get an awful lot of pressure when it comes to exposure uh, pain. You know, we're really not really worried about week-to-week volatility. And if we hang a number that we like and, and we see completely lopsided action on it that's not really a reason for us to move the line or the number we just want to get to the most accurate line as quickly as we can and you know the results will um kind of come as they may and and we live with that volatility and we just believe that we're making better decisions over the long term and you know hopefully we can get it right that's got to be music to Payne's ears john because Payne uh, years ago told me if he ever ran a sports book he'd love to shade his sides three and a half to four points different than the market and i kindly tried to explain to him that that take, may not take be a the stance, best baby. that may not be the best long-term business strategy you can accomplish that by being a half point to a full point uh different one last game i wanted to get your take on before we let you go the biggest number that we'll probably see all nfl season will take place in arrowhead on sunday with kansas city you know, almost a three-touchdown favorite against the Jets. Going to be difficult this week to get Jets money as well, or do you think you're actually going to see some Jets fans go, hey, let's pump the brakes a little bit. We can be competitive and only lose by 17 points against one of the <laughs> league's best teams. Yeah, we hung a bad number here initially. I think we, we posted minus 21 at the start, and, and predictably a 21 got plenty of, of Jet money. Uh, right now it's about 5-1 to one only in favor of the Chiefs. Definitely not the uh, most lopsided book we'll have on the weekend. Um, it's just such and such a big number. Everyone's talked about, you know, the history of these big spreads, 19 and over. I think there's only ever been 16 of them uh, back as far as 74. I think from the last six, they've gone five and one to the underdog. Um, it, there's just so many ways you can win this bet if you bet the Jets, in my view. 
Um, it's obviously a dangerous spot, but that's why you're getting 19. Um, I can't see this not moving another bit towards the 17 um, from the Jets' perspective. There's just not going to be enough sharp money. I, I don't believe that the market consensus can even stay at the 19.5 that we have it uh, right now. We made it closer to 18.5, so I think we'll be relatively fast to move it down, albeit it doesn't really matter at those numbers. But um, I, I'd be surprised if this number hangs around where it is, and you're probably better off bet, waiting to bet the Chiefs if that's the side you like, in my view. That'll be music to the ears of one of our most loyal listeners out there who is a long-standing, long-suffering New York Jets fan that texts me regularly bitching and moaning about them. Uh, and I go, why do you put yourself through this every single week? But he does it nonetheless. John, can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, I know our listeners can follow you on Twitter, at Jay Shear, and that's J-S-H-E-E-R-A-N-1981 on Twitter. Best of luck this weekend, and we'll look forward to doing it again, same time, same place, next Thursday. Cheers, guys. See, Payne, it's not just us and our listeners that uh, despise poor matchups on paper in primetime. The bookmakers don't like them either. It doesn't help things out. No. And this would otherwise have been a very good game between Dallas and Philadelphia. And relatively speaking, it is. Because this is for division supremacy. This is the battle of who is the toughest Smurf. What does it take? Six and wins to get that division title? <laughs> I, I told you. I think we talked about this. It was either Monday or last week. I don't know. All the smart guys there ran their models, and they thought that uh, a good chance that four would get you to win the division. Five, definitely. But I think you're probably closer to what it should be. Man, that's kind of scary when you think about it. You could have a six-win division champion hosting a playoff game, and inevitably we'll try and find our way onto the home underdog there. Shoot me now if we forecast out to early January. Um, three other games. Philadelphia could be healthier by then. Well, that that's would be a good the point. interesting spot. No one's going to want to go into Philadelphia if they're healthier. That would that would. No, they could a look a lot gap. more like the team that we thought they were going to be last year before they dealt with some injuries. And who knows how differently that game would have played out if we were talking about Carson Wentz in the playoff game against Seattle instead of Josh McCown filling in uh, at the on the wrong side of forty. Uh, three other games this weekend, Payne, that I think are intriguing, but I don't really believe any of them require deep dives. Uh, so when we look at the Raiders and Browns, I mean, this is a game we'll see if Vegas can bounce back from a fourth quarter that really got away from them against the Tampa Bay Bucks this past weekend. And right now at FanDuel, you're looking at the Raiders, a two-and-a-half-point underdog for their trip to Cleveland. Total in this game sits at 51. And when you try and figure out this game and how it's ultimately going to go, I think it boils down to short passing games. Which team can be more effective methodically moving the chains, knowing that the strength of the Raiders and, you know, well, the strength of the Browns definitely is the defensive line, but it's been a sneaky good strength of the Raiders in terms of stopping the opposing ground game. Yeah, and John hit on this, right? He saw early sharp money on this under, and it was primarily based on the weather. You're looking at a game right now, 25-mile-per-hour winds, gusts up to 38. Obviously, the team that can win in the trenches and produce on the ground probably... You know, it's going to enhance their chance to win here. But I think you know, if we go a little bit past the obvious, where the game could ultimately be decided is which of these quarterbacks, you know, Derek Carr, Baker Mayfield, is the more efficient short to intermediate passer, knowing that deep shots are well, going to be real tough here to connect on. And the one thing that I kind of uncovered here and, and what I see over Derek Carr's career is he's been very good in terms of being on target with intermediate throws at least 70% connect rate in every season in terms of intermediate on-target throws. The knock on Carr has been that he doesn't throw deep enough and that he only loves to throw short and intermediate. So that's a positive. Now, the first two seasons in the league for Baker, he's finished with a 61% and 57% on-target rate on intermediate throws. Derek Carr last season on-target with 77% of his intermediate throws, completed 71% of those for 13.3 yards per pass attempt. Baker Mayfield, 51% completion rate on intermediate throws last season for 9.2 an attempt. When you fast forward to this season, bottom line, what we're seeing is Derek Carr throws shorter more often and with better success, and that's exactly the worst area of Cleveland's defense metrically. We know the issues Cleveland has at linebacker, right, just from a personnel perspective. And then when you start to pinpoint Baker's throws a little bit more, he's chucking a lot of his balls right now. Uh, to the right side of the field in the 10 to 15 yard area 
on average, Baker's throwing deeper balls than Carr. And because they're these, you know, out routes, they have to travel a further distance. It's going to be difficult to do that in heavy wind. If you look at more like a direct route, straight, short and intermediate over the middle for Baker, he's only got a 70 passer rating and he's got three interceptions, whether it's the height, whether it's scheme, I don't know, but he hasn't been overly efficient throwing the ball short to intermediate over the middle of the field. So past the ground game, Todd, I I really think, you know, the wind uh, that's going to be out here again, 25 mile per hour winds up to 38 mile per hour gusts. The quarterback that can be most accurate on these short to intermediate throws is going to provide, I think, a huge edge to, to whichever offense. Uh, and ultimately, what we're seeing here, Todd, is is sharp money was on the Raiders plus three. John hit that spot on. I don't know where we're going to go from here at two and a half, but potentially a, a fine teaser leg uh, at this point if you've missed the three on the Raiders. And Payne, it wouldn't be a Thursday morning podcast unless we had breaking news regarding COVID status of an NFL team and or game taking place I'm this weekend. At, well, I'm looking at the screen. Can I guess? Is it Denver and, and the Chargers? Well, the Chargers doesn't seem to be nearly as major as it looks like all their meetings will go virtual today with a staff member testing positive. But if you scroll further down the screen and you look at betting number 273 and 274, some COVID news could impact Monday Night Football. As for the second straight week, the Tampa Bay Bucks will face an opponent who had to send its entire offensive line home to quarantine. So I don't know what <laughs> kind of good. weird not 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 good against that Bucks front. I don't not know what kind of weird Bucks voodoo front. Tom Brady has going on right now, but all things are coming up TB12 <laughs> in 2020, where Bill Belichick continues to flounder. But it makes Tom's job a heck of a lot easier when he can sit back, rest on his laurels, and know that his defense could potentially tee off on second team offensive linemen. What's going to be really frustrating is if this game gets canceled. Yeah, that's well, what's going to be really frustrating. <laughs> I wasn't going to break. I wasn't going to bring that up because I don't think our listeners are as uh, financially invested as we are. We can get to that on Monday, assuming this game will take place, and talk a little bit more about that. But uh, that comes from a this tweet is from- this is one area, right? Whether it's college football, whether it's the NFL, once these teams are out of it, there's going to probably be less buy-in in terms of these protocols. So this is where the NFL is going to really have to put its foot down, find these players, find these teams. On the college level, that becomes the problem, right? You have the senior who's, you know, a backup, and, you know, the team's two and four, one and five going nowhere. Are you going to get him to stay out of the bar or hanging out with his friends that aren't on the, you know, in the football sphere, so to speak, Is he going to kind of follow these protocols now that the season's over? And I think that's the uphill battle, at least in college football. On the NFL level, it still is one, but the NFL can come in with the hammer and start finding these players and teams if that ends up being the case. Yeah, so that's the news Thursday morning. We'll see how all of these storylines continue to unfold between now and kickoff on Sunday in the case of the Chargers and, of course, in the case of the New York football Giants for Monday Night Football when they'll welcome in the Tampa Bay Bucks. However, we do have a couple other games on Sunday that are, or at least one other game on Sunday that's worth touching on. Uh, And that's the late afternoon contest between the Bears and the New Orleans Saints. We, of course, saw the Bears on Monday Night Football look ill-equipped, and that may be an understatement to throw the forward pass or move the ball down the football field against the Los Angeles Rams defense. And they find themselves a four and a half point home underdog as the New Orleans Saints come a calling. Total in this game, 43 and a half. We touched on this game Monday, said the look ahead number here only had the Saints listed as a two and a half point favorite. Of course, the big storyline to keep tabs on there, Allen Robinson, he enters the concussion protocol. We know what he means to what the Bears want to do offensively. This week, Matt Nagy said, well, the offensive scheme is what it is. I'm not relinquishing play calling duties. But Payne, let's call a spade a spade. Something has to change on the offensive side of the ball, and I'm not quite sure what the Bears need to shake things up. It's pretty simple, right? Matt Nagy needs to be better. How about maybe, uh, you know, self-scouting and seeing what you do best as an offense and then do more of that? Maybe it's time that we see Bill Lazor call plays. I know that's being tossed around out there. But what's concerning is Chicago hasn't figured out that they need to use heavier sets. I'm looking, and Chicago's only using two tight end sets on 18% of snaps. I don't know how that makes any sense. You spent big money on Jimmy Graham and major draft capital on Cole Komet. Play to the personnel. And you look, you bring in Nick Foles. Like, where did he thrive in Philadelphia? And it was with two tight end sets. And 
it, it makes no sense. And this is why it's tough to do this because a lot of these guys are going to forget more football than I'll ever know, Todd. So it's not like coming at it from that perspective, but like, you know, making millions of dollars, maybe self-scout yourself. And if you look at the Bears right now, 110 passer rating from throwing from two tight end sets, a 71% passing success rate, whether it's Foles or Trubisky, neither has been sacked from that formation. But instead of doing that, Matt Nagy's going three wides, right? And if you look at his offense right now, has a passing success rate 30% lower, a passer rating 30 points lower, quarterbacks are averaging 3.1 yards less per pass attempt, and they've been sacked 10 times from 11 versus zero from 12. So it's not like you have this all-world receiving core either. It doesn't make sense. So to me, it's very clear that you can see Foles' confidence grow when they're throwing from heavier sets. He's not the most mobile guy. He's tall. He's got these long legs. I don't want people diving around at him. He just looks like he's more comfortable when he knows he's got the protection. And so hopefully we see more of that implemented. Allen Robinson's, we'll see what his status is. He's battling the concussion. It's a short week, so it's going to be a larger hurdle to kind of get over that concussion protocol. Maybe if he's out, it forces him into more two wide sets. Obviously, it's not a good thing that Allen Robinson could potentially be out. We'll see. But it just doesn't make sense. Now, not only is I, I think this beneficial that the Bears kind of use this in general, but look who you're playing this week. They're going against the Saints defense that's worse defending passes from two tight end sets when you look at success rate, yards per pass attempt, air yards, and New Orleans only has one sack against that formation. I think that's the matchup to watch here, right? If Matt Nagley implements more of this, and, you know, if he does, I think you're going to see some some more success from this offense. I like Cole Komet. And obviously the organization thinks higher of Jimmy Graham than I do. Get him out there simultaneously. We saw Komet have a nice catch downfield in the Monday night game. Was that the most explosive pass they had until the Allen Robinson one late, I believe? I, it just makes more sense. Go get Cole Komet involved. He might be, aside from Allen Robinson, your best offensive weapon. Yeah, that Allen Robinson play late in the game had me sweating my under 72 and a half receiving yards there. I thought that thing was a dead nuts winner. And uh, all of a sudden, whoa, the sweat became real. And then Robinson gets his bell rung, ultimately falls on 70. Going to be interesting. Is this, is this another thing that you bet and didn't tell me, but the information no. from the podcast led you there? Is... I mean, there's a lot of information on the podcast <laughs> that I should use as our listeners. I didn't know should. you actually went there. Good no, for I, you. I had to use it for a TV show. Didn't actually okay, use it. Gotcha. So I had a little TV, little TV sweat there. Okay. Um, to try and be able to keep I got I got talked out of it. I ended up getting talked out of that, by the way, by one of our guys because uh, well, Jalen Ramsey has been operating more, more defending the slot. the slot and not yes and not playing as much shadowing this year. So I got talked off the game, and even with the forty yard catch there, it still went under. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, every now and again, you get a sweat here and there. You got a number of obligations you have to fulfill in this media business. So I try and give out the best information. And I use the intel that you share with our listeners to try and make those informed choices, even if it ultimately doesn't get me to the window. Um, Last but not least, Thursday Night Football, a showdown, uh, and I use that term relatively loosely, between two familiar divisional foes in the Carolina Panthers and the Atlanta Falcons. And we're looking at Carolina right now at FanDuel. A two-point favorite total on the game, 51.5. Paying these two teams met just a few short weeks ago, a game where Carolina went into Atlanta, won that contest 23-16. The Panthers have lost seven straight on short rest and been downright awful on Thursdays. Now, I know it's a new regime, so that stuff probably gets thrown out the windows. The Falcons, meanwhile, have gone under the total in eight straight primetime games. The only favorite to cover on Thursday so far this year, take it for what you will, was Kansas City way back in week one. And when, what's hmm. interesting about this, you look at one player in particular, it's Calvin Ridley that's really feasted on Carolina defensively. 509 yards and four touchdowns, had eight for 136. Of course, that was without Julio Jones. But meanwhile, Calvin continues to put together a strong season. However, it's not the Atlanta passing game that uh, we believe will decide this. It may be Atlanta's ability to run the football. The floor is yours, kind sir. Yeah, and, and you know, it'll sound antiquated. Obviously, Matt Ryan's going to have to have a big game, and you have Julio back, and Ridley's been crushing it, and you evade a scary situation there with Gage going down. It looked like he tore his ACL, and then all of a sudden he's back for that final drive terrorizing us last week. But I, I do. I, I think it's, you know, on a short week, against a familiar division opponent. 
I think these games come down to a little bit more old school football. It's execution. It's physicality. I think Atlanta has to be able to run the ball and for multiple reasons. And, you know, per usual, we are seeing the group that is obsessed with the Falcons go back to the low. They love the Falcons. Love the Falcons. (laughs) Took three. We're now down to two. But I think the matchup that ultimately decides this is is Atlanta's ground game. We know Carolina cannot stop the run. 28th in defensive rush efficiency, 26th in rushing success rate. And those numbers for Carolina's defense have come against the fourth easiest schedule of run offenses. If you go back to week five, Atlanta and Carolina played, obviously. Falcons averaged 6.6 a carry, had a 64% success rate. But the part of the field where we really think running is still extremely valuable is in that money zone. But Atlanta ended up settling for three field goals, and Matt Ryan threw a pick on his four trips inside the Panthers' 36, all in the second half. And I think, again, with you know Julio Jones coming back, didn't play in that Week 5 matchup, he probably is going to open things up even more for the ground game, and you know with Carolina having to focus on Julio a little bit more. When we broke down Carolina last week, Todd, you know, we talked about their inability to stop the run, it was a problem once again. The other thing here is it looks like defensive tackle Zach Kerr is out. So add Kerr to the list of, you know, Kawan Short and Gross Matos, who are injured defensive linemen for the Panthers, a position that didn't really have much depth coming into the season. So I think Atlanta is able to get that ground game going a little bit this week, be a little bit more multidimensional, and then hopefully you can run the ball where it matters most. You're going to be able to punch these in for, for touchdowns, something that we know Atlanta struggled with in, you know, ever since Kyle Shanahan left town, town is, is uh, you know, punching the ball in for seven, although uh, they managed to do that a little bit last week late in the game, much to our chagrin. By the way, did you see that clip coming across the old interwebs where Matt Ryan's telling Todd Gurley before the snap, get the first down and go down, and Gurley's like, yeah, got you, got you. Done deal. Well, that would explain why Gurley was so irate and uh, yeah. took full responsibility for his action there and just flat out said, hey, look, my momentum carried me into the end zone um, with that particular stanza of the game. And there's no doubt. I mean, when you're paid the money, these guys are. Situational awareness is a big part of it. And the only way the Falcons could have possibly lost that game, obviously the missed field goal gets factored in, but from the two-yard line, you don't expect it to happen, was giving the ball back to Matt Stafford even with no timeouts and then finding TJ Hawkinson wide open in the end zone. Uh, for the game-winning touchdown. I'm just marking this down, though. So Atlanta's key to success is running the football. Todd Gurley rushing yards. We'll have to explore that problem. Yeah, See it's more. a short week. I don't know how... No, maybe it's definitely a group worry about his workload. here for Atlanta's ground game. What'd you say? Maybe it's a group effort here for Atlanta's ground game on a short week, obviously. Yeah. I mean, we saw, his ca- we saw his carries 14 uh, on a full week, so he didn't exactly have a huge workload the first time around, but uh, did exceed the century mark. Maybe it is a Brian Hill coming out party. He's uh, bursty. As, as He's bursty. I don't know <laughs> if that's uh, a good adjective to describe someone. I'm not quite sure. Like if you walk oh, into running a, back. Okay. Well, I wasn't sure if you like walk into a bar and you're talking to your friends no. and they go, yeah, that pain, he's one bursty fella. I, I don't no, know how you, no. how you take that. No. no. Okay. All right. That's two big game breakdowns. Check. <laughs> that's an interview with John. We've got that done and accomplished. Three games with one key factor that I think a lot of our audience will be anxiously glued to their TV sets and or their mobile apps to take full advantage of the wagering options that are out there. So that's all done. You can follow Payne on Twitter at Payne Insider. You can follow me on Twitter at Todd Furman. You can follow the podcast at BetTheBoardPod. But there is one last thing we still have to do before I can stop dealing with you for the next 72 hours, and that's figure out how we're going to steer our listeners to the window this weekend with a winning wager. All right. Let's keep it in my backyard this week, Todd. Let's Are you going to be in attendance? With... No, no. I can't do that. Sounds like a defeatist mentality if you ask me. If I get to a game, it's because it's a national TV one that's scheduled on like a Thursday night or a Sunday night. I just can't be away from... Uh, the computer screens at one o'clock on a Sunday just can't happen. So unfortunately, I will not be at the game. But let's go with with two six four Miami Dolphins. Let's take the three and a half that's still out there right now. John is John is spot on. There was a group that hit him yesterday at four. There's a couple things with this game. The first is we can go with Byron Jones. He is now back healthy. In games that Byron Jones has played, Miami's fifth 
in defensive passing success rate. So a huge boost up having him and Xavier Howard on the outside, being able to man receivers, and it allows you to stick more guys in the box to help against the run. The other thing here that's, I think, somewhat accounted for, because there is no bargain here on this price at this point, but the travel. You're looking at the Rams making an East Coast trip after the Monday night game, and you may say, hey, your Rams have been decent on the East Coast. True. But look at this. Week two, they're in Philly. Week three, they're in Buffalo. You go to week five, Washington, and then you're making this other trip here. I mean, it's just the trips to the East Coast are starting to add up a little bit here. And I think the question marks that we had about the Rams, I don't necessarily know if they're answered beating a really overrated Chicago team. Coming into last week, the narrative was for everyone that liked Chicago. I think we kind of hinted that we liked the Rams on Monday night, but everyone that liked Chicago in that game was like, who have the Rams beat? So, you know, beating Chicago doesn't really do it for me. The other thing that we have here, and it's something we've talked about on this podcast pretty frequently in a little bit of a joking manner. You remember the guy who took Sean McVay's mojo away? Yeah, I do remember. That would be head coach Bill Belichick and his defensive coordinator, Brian Flores. There you go. So I think there's a pretty decent game plan here to go against a Sean McVay offense. I think the blueprint's a little bit out there, right? Goff is a guy that really needs the help of his coach. And Flores and Belichick kind of devised a game plan in that Super Bowl to to get that figured out a little bit. Then obviously it's going to be a hot, humid day on Sunday, and you have you know a West Coast team that's that's not really used to humidity. So I think there's a lot of these ancillary factors that all add up to getting on the Dolphins here, despite not being a ton of value in the number. Can I interest you in any season-long props from FanDuel on Tua? Over under 1,999 passing yards, over under 11.5 touchdowns, and who will Tua throw his first ever touchdown pass to Devontae Parker, the favorite over Mike Kosicki, Preston Williams, Miles Gaskin, Isaiah Ford, Adam Shaheen, Antonio Callaway, Jaheem Grant, and Matt Breida, all available for your wagering interest for those that want to have an extra little bit of skin in the game for Tua's debut. Good for Adam Shaheen, by the way. The Dolphins just Two-year re-signed. deal, right? Yeah. So somehow, Chicago couldn't find room for him. <laughs> I don't know what they do there with the tight end. They, they get rid of some, then they acquire a bunch and don't use them. Very tough times for Chicago. Although the record, Ditka. record's they're, fantastic. They're waiting for Ditka to come back through those doors. <laughs> Ditka. That's right. All right, so, all let's right. get out of Dodge. Yeah, we, we've done enough damage. We've eaten up enough of uh, people's time so far today. For Pain Insider, uh, I am Todd Furman. You can, of course, again, follow us on Twitter, at Pain Insider, at Todd Furman Podcast, at Bet the Board Pod. Payne, anything else? Last call for life advice, gambling advice, TV shows, books, movies. If there isn't a Monday game, do I get a day off? We'll discuss that. I'll have to go through the uh, con- I'll have to I go just want to contract. put your feet to the fire in front of everyone. No, I'm going to have to go to your contract. I'm going to have to look at the uh, fine print there and see what we signed you to for your lifetime deal. I'm not quite sure how that works. But lifetime either- deal. Man, I'm hoping to be out of here by 40. Well, it's a good thing you're 24, so that gives a 16-year runway to accomplish a heck of a lot more with this fine brand. Enough bantering and bullshit for one Thursday morning. Uh, We'll... I don't even know what to say. Come Sunday with the Miami Dolphins. Ticket in your hand. We'll see you at the window. Thanks for listening to Bet the Board. You can catch Todd and Payne every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday during football season, breaking down the biggest NFL and college football games. And to make sure you don't miss any free best bets, subscribe to Bet the Board on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.